2021 Canada Day celebrations were a bit muted this year, not just because of the pandemic, but due to the discovery of three unmarked grave sites near residential schools in Canada. At this point, more than 1,000 graves have been discovered with ground-penetrating technology. It's expected many more will soon be uncovered. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished TV. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. The residential school system in Canada saw Indigenous children pulled from their traditional homes and family with the intent of driving out their culture and language. About two-thirds of those residential schools were run by the Catholic Church, although others were run by the United Anglican and Presbyterian Churches. Now, the 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Commission report outlined the many abuses suffered by the children, as well as the knowledge of these grave sites. But as that report aged, it seemed the knowledge of the horror dimmed in the public eye. Then, when the first discovery was announced in Kamloops, there was widespread outrage and condemnation. It's surprising that, after six years, Canadians finally remembered. We realize we're past the holiday now, but the Cancel Candidate movement grew across the country, as many reflected on that tragic discovery. Our unpublished vote question asked, do you feel Canada Day celebrations should be canceled in light of the discoveries in Kamloops, Saskatchewan, and now Cranbrook? 12% said yes, 87.5% said no. And however you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or our podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote and then email your MP to tell them why. Joining us to discuss this issue and where it could lead is Melissa Embarkey, Policy Analyst and Outreach Coordinator of Indigenous Policy Program at the McDonald's. Donald Laurier Institute as well. Carl Narenberg is the political reporter with Rabble, and I thank you both for joining us. And uh, we'll start off with, with you, Melissa. Just a 12% uh, of our viewers felt uh, Canada Day should be canceled this year. Are you surprised it's low or it's high, or what do you think about that? I'm going to come at this from um, a community that has found unmarked graves. I come from the Skelgan First Nation. And back in the early 2000s, uh, we had actually conducted our own search and uncovered 34 to 35 unmarked graves. And it was a finding that wasn't in the media. Um, it was a finding that we wanted to explore more to see if there were any more unmarked grave sites within the vicinity of the school. And, um, you know, it's an ongoing process. It's going to be an ongoing process for Canadians as more and more um, of these communities search for unmarked graves. So canceling Canada Day to me doesn't make sense. Um, you know, it, we're going to have more holidays after this. It's going to be years and years of looking and findings. And if we don't come up with a reconciliation process now, we're never going to do it. So I think the discussion shouldn't be what can we cancel. The question should be how do we support these communities? And how do we work towards reconciliation with them? Are there other ways we can help them? Are there other ways that we can get messaging across for them? As opposed to canceling one or two holidays. To me, that doesn't make sense. I, I, you know, in, 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 in light of the, the movement, I, I don't think it was like cancel it forever. It was predominantly just for this year because of obviously the, the tragic discovery. Uh, Carl, uh, what do you think? Just, you know, just about 12% felt it, it should have been canceled. Are you surprised by that number? I'm not surprised by the number, and uh, my own view is that I sympathize a great deal with those 
who want to do something. And I think it's especially people who consider themselves to be allies of indigenous people rather than indigenous people themselves. Uh, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. And I think this whole movement came out of all kinds of people, often in large cities. And I know people in Kingston were very involved in it. Um, so it was a need to visibly and publicly take a stand. It's sort of like taking down Sir John M. Macdonald's statue, that sort of thing. But uh, I agree with Melissa that what is really important to do are tangible and concrete things to do. And I'll make one tangible suggestion. I think Canada, we talk a lot about the report of um, Murray Sinclair's uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is interesting. And it has, it has like these bullet point recommendations, many of them. And I should mention, Justin Trudeau was leader of a Liberal Party with about 37 or 38 members of Parliament when that report became, when it was, it was made public. And Justin Trudeau said at the time, he had maybe an hour to read it, and he said immediately, because he was the third party and thought he had to say something, we will implement every single one of them. Interestingly enough, Tom Mulcair was leader of the NDP at the time, he says, I think I'll read it first, you know, before I determine how many I can, I can implement and when. And of course, Stephen Harper was a conservative leader, and he says, well, we're going to consider this and all that sort of usual politician stuff. But I would want Canada to go back to the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples that was commissioned by Brian Mulroney when he was Prime Minister after the Oka crisis, and look at that. That has, in a way, more robust, more far-reaching, more systematic recommendations than the Truth and Reconciliation. I think in particular, one, one very small and tangible thing they can do, they say, why, doesn't, why does Canada guarantee four members of Parliament for 150,000 people in Prince Edward Island and zero members of Parliament for every single Aboriginal person? The only way an Aboriginal person can get elected is if they somehow get themselves elected, often in a riding where they are a minority of the people. They're, the ridings where Aboriginal people our majority are in the nor north of 60, are in the uh, in Nunavut and in the Northwest Territories, not Yukon. So uh, New Zealand does that. New Zealand has seats for its in Parliament guaranteed for its Aboriginal people, the Maori. The other thing they said, again, in the political side, we have a Senate for the provinces. We have a House of Commons for everybody without Aboriginal representation guaranteed, but we don't have a body like a, a house of assembly for indigenous Canadians and we should have that parallel. So that was one suggestion. But another one they talk about is the Indian Act created many, many, 600 and some bands. Some of those bands are a few hundred people. They're all impoverished, almost all impoverished, not all. And, and some of them are bigger. They point out the territory in all those bands combined in Canada, all of them, is less than the territory of a, the single large Navajo reservation in the southwest United States. One, that the United States, for all that we sneer at them, has actually allocated more dedicated land to its Aboriginal people on a proportionate basis than Canada, way more. That the amount of land for Canada's Aboriginal people that's in the reserve land is almost none, tiny little bit, and uh, useless land. Often, look at Kosheshawan, the people yeah. are put on the worst, most useless, most unserviceable. I remember visiting Davis in the, in the Labrador and they finally had to move the community. So we have to, what the Royal Commission talks about is something like what we have in northern Quebec uh, region, the James Bay Territory. You have a government there, the James Bay Cree and the James Bay Inuit or the northern Quebec Inuit, a government that 
covers what we would call bands, about 20 different bands, over a vast territory that is their territory and, and it covers they get royalties from the hydroelectricity they have governance structures you go to the schools and i remember doing this as a tv producer you go to a school in the quebec james bay side the principal is a cree there was a french canadian teacher there told me oh yeah my I, I teach here my child goes to school she now speaks cree they run the schools they run the natural resource operation, they run local government. It's not perfect. It, it was an extinguishment treaty, which we can talk about. But it is, they said there should be 60 or 70 First Nations, real nations. If you take like the Ojibwe uh, of Northern Ontario or the Dene of uh, Saskatchewan, and you'd have a proper region and a proper capacity for governance. And anyway, that is, that would, I say, have a look at that, that was George Erasmus and Judge René Dussault. It reported, I think, in 1996. It went immediately on the shelf. Not a single politician said, even promised to read it, never mind implement it. It just disappeared completely. Uh, two days later, it was all too radical and it was all too fundamental. But it would result in, in a real change in the relationship. Uh, what, do you, what do you think, Melissa? The, the Royal Commission report, that doesn't seem to get as much, uh, much talk as the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Committee report. Uh, is that maybe something that uh, Canada has uh, missed the boat on? Well, actually, Canada has missed the boat on many things. Um, not just the TRC report, but Commissioner's report. Pretty much any report that's out there that, you know, took years to, to develop and write is often sitting on someone's desk. And the only time that any of these issues are addressed is when churches start to burn or, you know, we start finding mass graves. Uh, so I will just, uh, I'll just pick up okay. uh, from what Melissa is talking about. I mean, the, the heart of the issue to me is economic as much as it is about symbols and apologies and about pain and the resolution. That's there. That's possible. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's as much about looking to the future and truly talking about viable models of economic development for First Nations. I'll tell you, I remember going to the Parliamentary Committee on Public Accounts in 2011 when Michael Wernick was still the Deputy Minister of what we then called Aboriginal Affairs, been changed to Indigenous Affairs. and. They were talking about the Auditor General's periodic reports where she, that time it was Sheila Fraser, but Auditor General frequently talked about the terrible lack of services, the terrible inefficiency providing wa drinking water, of course, and municipal services and infrastructure, and the terrible inadequate um, health and education services on reserves in general and the terrible outcomes. And, and Michael Wernick admitted, he says, well, we need an all-of-government approach to do this, and it's very hard to convince the rest of government to take an interest. And we're dealing with, uh, the Auditor General said, these are idiotic ways of running anything. I mean, each individual band has a contribution agreement for its schools, for instance, an education system, with the federal government. You have federal government here, huge entity with 360,000 employees, <laughs> with billions of dollars, you know, the largest enterprise in all of Canada by far, and you have little band in northwestern Ontario, 500 people in a negotiation. What kind of negotiation is that? And they get a contribution agreement that are so complicated and so onerous that a huge amounts of money from the agreement have to go to consultants to help them deal with it. These communities don't have a huge number of accountants and lawyers and people to deal with it. So much of the money for 
services to indigenous people go to all these industry of consultants who they need in order to interact with the federal government because they can't figure out what they're supposed to do. As a result, again, I keep, I point, mm -hmm. the model was changed. They broke that model for James Bay. So they have the Cree school board of Quebec, exactly what Michael Wernick said we needed. He says, you know, we don't know, we're the federal government. Education is not one of our responsibilities. So the only people who are responsible to educate are indigenous people. The provinces educate people. We need to figure out from the province, and the provinces provide hospitals and healthcare to people. We don't do that either. So we have to figure out from the provinces how to do it. But, you know, Michael Wernick became the deputy minister. He had a chance. He had a chance to say, I'm in charge now. We're going to do an all the government approach. But what did he do? He worried about convincing Jody Wilson-Raybould that she had to give a, give a, a break to a Quebec company in Quebec because they were worried about an election coming. He became another political operative like everybody else and he forgot about his previous role. I think no, you're there now, Melissa. You can talk now, I think. Are you there, Melissa? There we go. I definitely am. No, I agree with the red tape. I agree that the provincial and federal governments need to work together. And when they start doing this, we'll start resolving some of these issues like health, education, and even child and welfare. Um, you know, but there, there's just that refusal to get there. And I think that's part of what our next steps are, is how do we get all these bodies together and maybe form one so that we don't have different bits and pieces going all over the place where we can't keep track of it. And that's another issue that we're facing is tracking you know, funds going to the reserves, what's going there and what's not going there. You know, this is something that Canadian taxpayers are asking. And that's something that we can't provide them because there's no financial accountability on the federal side of things. And we need to start changing this flow of money and flow of resources. And we need to start getting these resources directly to reserves and bypassing some of the consultants or some of these middlemen that do reap the benefits and reserves don't because by the time the money gets there it's already spent so you have little to no money to go to water issues and it's very frustrating from a reserve point of view because we're getting the backlash it's like well where's all the money well we can tell you what we get for water which is zero every year um you know we can tell you that number but how it's funneled through to us and how it doesn't actually get to us, we can't tell you because that's all on the federal end of things. So I think there has to be a public awareness that we're just as in the dark as you are, you know, and blaming our leaders and our elected chief and council isn't going to get us anywhere because there are people working above them that are just as responsible and we need to start looking at accountability. You know, Melissa, I, I, Wondering uh, from, from your perspective, is it a positive for Canada's Indigenous communities that these recent discoveries have, have woken something in Canadians? I think it has. I mean, there's a lot more conversations that are happening that didn't previously happen before. Um, there's a lot more awareness about residential schools. You see a lot more people wearing orange and understanding what that means. Um, there's a lot more people questioning the water issue. Like, why is it taking so long for this issue? to be resolved you know and, and that's not an answer that a first nations community can give you because we're waiting for funds so that answer needs to come from your mps you know that answer needs to come from the federal government that's operating reserves so i think it's it's garnered a lot of questions 
It's uh, brought a lot of awareness and it's bringing a lot of conversations even about the Indian Act that people didn't necessarily know about or even read about previously. So I think it's, it's getting the questions out there and it's actually bringing positive um, conversations into the picture. Um, you know, people that are saying, well, you know, if you go here, you can probably get answers. Um, so it's, it's helping us in a way, but, you know, we still have a long way to go. Um, especially dealing with the Indian Act. Uh, Carl, uh, go ahead, Carl. No, I just wanted to pick up on that um, sure. in terms of the way services are provided. I mean, Melissa, you are yourself an Indigenous person. You know a lot about it, more about it than I do, and it's lived it. But I've had a long, long lifetime, lifelong association with Indigenous people. I was a very young person. My wife and I taught in a community in the Northwest Territories, north of the Arctic Circle that on the map is called Fort McPherson, but the people call it Tetlidje. So it's a Gwich'in community, and the Gwich'in people are one of the Dene nations. This particular Dene group, their homeland, runs across the Northwest Territories, Northern Yukon, into Alaska. But they are associated through the rest of the Mackenzie Valley with the other Dene people, like the Hareskin and Dog Rib and all the other groups in the Chippewa in the Northwest Territories. And, you know, I remember going way back then, uh, I mean, again, I think the education we offered through the North Territorial Government of the Northwest Territories, which was like a province, was far better than people could expect on a reserve in Alberta, say, or most reserves in Alberta or Saskatchewan, where they're in a, in a bilateral contribution agreement with the federal government. You know, we, so the, the entire Northwest Territories would, would have an education department headquartered in Yellowknife and they had facilities, we had, we had specialists and they had training and they, they brought in qualified teachers and they, they tried to treat everybody well and we included, we included an Indigenous people in the program. The, the late William Nersu, who was a wonderful uh, elder in the community, would come in and teach language and teach the culture. I had a friend who was an, uh, a professional ethno-linguist who created teaching materials uh, to teach lang languages that were disappearing, to teach them back to the young people. And the, you know, the territories, the, the Yukon and NWT did this. So there was, uh, there was, a, good, uh, you know, there was a good quality of, of culturally sensitive education. You saw that with a lot of people succeeding later in life, people who would go on and have, a, have roots in their culture and also have uh, a capacity to interact with the rest of the culture, have professional jobs. I mean, the, Stephen Harper commissioned a, a report on Indigenous education that said that, that the stronger the roots in their own culture, the better capable will Indigenous young people be to deal with the rest of society and the rest of culture. We learned that through the, through the residential schools by ripping people away from their culture and trying to stamp it out. You got people who were damaged and bruised and, and, and couldn't function in society. But I still noticed when the housing people came from Canada Mortgage and Housing, they were talking about building housing, they had no concept of how people lived. You know, we were talking to people there, they said, if they're going to build houses here, what do we do here? What do we need here? We're fishing and hunting here. Uh, we're bringing in great big, they catch a great big fish there called the coney, a little bit like a whitefish, but it's like three, four feet long. They bring it into the house. They're bringing a caribou or a moose right into the house to slaughter it. We need a great big cold porch outside, an enormous porch where we put stuff down when we come in. And then we need to have that rooms organized that way so that we can use wood 
as well as uh, as well as gas or oil uh, to heat our house because we want to use you know wood. We can cut wood ourselves, and we can get wood, and we don't have to pay money for it. So they ha we want a, a house that respects our culture and traditions and our way of life that is designed for us. You get that again in, in, in Chisassipi, which, which the native people had a part of developing. You got housing that was more appropriate in its style of housing. But here they wanted to take a, a, a suburban house from Canada for somebody who works in high tech and plop it there. They'd even think they'd have a lawn. Well, you don't can't grow a lawn in the Northwest Territories. You know, the <laughs> grass doesn't grow there. And no. it was just like, and these people, I, have, I can't tell you the number of civil servants I've met who work in indigenous affairs, who've never been to an indigenous community, ever. They never set foot in one of, one, in a, not, they have, there are professional civil servants who are worried about their careers, are worried about making their boss happy. And, and you know, somebody once told me, she went to work, she came out of another department. Why am I working for indigenous affairs? Oh, Michael Wernick is my hero. I like him and, and he'll help me rise in the civil service. That's a bit of what, you know, the politicians talk a big game. The politicians go once in a while and make a grandstanding trip uh, even when we were living way up there, I mean, the minister of, of uh, what they called Indian Affairs came to the community at one time and made some silly speech and talked about all the nice food they were giving him to eat. But the, the, the people who actually run it day to day, many of them, for them, they are paper shoveling uh, careerist bureaucrats. And, you know, this is, the housing is a, is a classic example where they were just saying it would just begrudgingly, well, we'll provide them housing and no concept of how, and no concept how to, how to wed origins, roots, tradition, way of life, a traditional way of life that, that meshes with a, mo a modern contemporary way of life, none. No respect for that. We're just, you should be happy we're just going to plop a prefab house onto the land here until you can live in there. And they ended up living like 16, 17 to a house where we, and where the person in Canada, we were living three people to the house. Mm. So, Melissa, so. Melissa you, you wrote, but we have a lot of hard work in coming years to reach a place of reconciliation. What kind of work are we going to need to do? It's the kind of work that we're talking about in this um, in this series. Um, you know, we got to look at land issues. We got to look at housing issues. We got to look at the economy. Got to look at sovereignty. I mean, there's so many different issues that we need to address for on reserve people that aren't being looked at at all. And one of the more uh, prominent ones in the news today is the quality of water that people yeah. are drinking. You know, like I I grew up under a boil water advisory for about seven years. Um, you know, and people don't realize how this impacts your life. Like I had, I was on antibiotics for that full time because of the water issue. And later in life, I became antibiotic resistant. So these are some of the health issues that people don't normally hear about. They just hear about unclean water, but they don't realize what this does to a person's health until, you know, you get to my age and you're like, oh, maybe, you know, I need to go through a cocktail of drugs before something actually works for me. So we're creating problems by not addressing them, you know, and the problems are getting worse because we're not addressing them. And if we start looking at it from, you know, either a social perspective or an economic perspective, we can start to see change in some of these communities. You know, sovereignty is one of them. Let these, let these communities make decisions for themselves. Each community is different. We're not a monolith. Not all of them are well off. You know, there's some that are quite poor like mine where we don't have economic self-sufficiency. You know, we have one store, uh, we have one school, we have a bingo hall. That's about all that we have. You know, we it's not enough to sustain a community of four, 500 people. 
So we need to start thinking outside the box and how we can help these communities so that they can better take care of themselves. Because at the end of the day, that's what we want. We want to be able to take care of ourselves. So help us get there, whether it's through change in policy or whether it's through government initiatives. You know, we need to get there somehow. You know, uh, Melissa, the Catholic Church has yet to apologize. And obviously, we've got a, a rash of church burnings going on in Canada right now. Uh, I'm going to link the two of them together. How how important is it for the Indigenous community in Canada to have a public apology by the Pope on Canadian soil? You know, we've seen the apology come from our PM, from, you know, we we've had that apology we've survivors have been compensated has it really changed a lot in our communities you know like from the time that this happened in stephen harper's area era it hasn't changed a whole lot you know my community hasn't changed because of it so the pope apologizing is just one step in this whole process it's not gonna it's not gonna change us as a whole it's not gonna start you know bringing economic development to our community you know, we have to say, okay, once we get this apology, this is what, you know, we want to do. You know, how can we get there either through the Pope or either through the federal government? How are we going to be self-sufficient? You know, and it pays, it, it, it's a small piece in the in a bigger puzzle. Um, you know, and we need, like I said, it's, it's going to be a long road. You know, we have years ahead of us of hard work and we need to figure out what work is going to be important for each community and go from there. You know, Carl, I am always a little bit shocked or surprised that so few Canadians knew about or know about the residential schools. And, you know, there has been a call to start teaching about that in obviously the broader curriculum. Should it be? Well, I think we should probably rethink how we teach the history of this country. I mean, a bit of the problem, I'll tell you, uh, having been a teacher once many, many, many years ago, before Melissa was born, I think, so I'm aging myself, uh, is that uh, subjects like history aren't even, even really considered very important anymore. You hardly teach history at all. So if you say we should change the history curriculum, it's a bit meaningless because they don't even teach history. So what are you changing? But assuming that you're teaching something about Canada, I mean, when I'm so old, when they started teaching us about Canada, they barely mentioned Indigenous people. Barely, barely. It was glancingly mentioned. Before you knew it, then Jacques Cartier came and, you know, Champlain came and then we were off to the races and you never heard from Indigenous people again. And then maybe there's a little mention of Louis Riel and that's the only Indigenous person's name you ever heard. So we have to, you know, rethink the way we teach what this country is and what it was uh, and, and what it was uh, for thousands of years and, and, and start teaching about the actual face of what Canada was, you know, in, in uh, 1608 when Champlain uh, established the first uh, little, little settlement in Quebec. What, who, who was living here? What was... All right, Carl, Honestly, seems you've frozen. Uh, I had the opportunity to visit the James Bay just on a camping trip. Oh, sorry, can you see me? Yep, you're good. Okay, uh, so years ago I had an opportunity to visit just on a just on a vacation trip, just looking, just you know, on a camping trip way up into James Bay. So I learned something. I met the people, met Cree people in that area, visited some communities in Mistassini Lake and places like that, and I got interested. And then a little bit while after that, while still a young person, we decided to go live 
in an indigenous community in the north, and then I got really interested in me. I didn't know who the Denny people were. I didn't know the names of all these. I'd never heard of the Gwich'in people, I can tell you for sure. Mm. You know, or the Lakota, or the, uh, the Salto Cree, and all these other, uh, or the Algonquin. You know, I, I, it was all uh, nothing to me. I mean, if you look at the map, so we should be teaching young people, starting out of looking at Canada, as Canada, indigenous Canada, it should be our starting place. And it shouldn't end then. <laughs> then you carry on showing the relation. You know, the minute you get to Confederation, I have a friend who was a fellow teacher with us when we lived in the North, who was one of the two Gwich'in teachers in that school. And she was a teacher. Uh, she now actually lives in, at least teaches on a reserve in Alberta, but she was one of the two there. And she taught junior grades. I think she taught grade one or kindergarten. You know, she commented on Facebook, if you had only included us when you started this country in 1867, if we were only at the table with you uh, when you started it, we'd have a very different kind of Canada now, and it would be to everybody's benefit. But we, when we talk about confederation, we have to point out the, 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 the representatives of different groups of colonizers met, <laughs> excluding the people who had already, were already here, uh, completely. They figured, they, 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 they horse traded and decided what they wanted the country to be, excluding the, any representative of Tall, of any of the people who had been here before they got here. And we, if we carry on that teaching, so then it would include the residential schools as part of it. I don't think we should teach the residential schools in isolation. I should teach it as part all, of right. the colonial project and part of the kind of Canada that we have developed. Let me tell you something. Another place I've had a good chance to visit was South Africa during the apartheid era. Few Canadians realize when the South Africans wanted to develop their apartheid system, the white government, who do they look to? Where do they go? Canada. They looked at Canada's reserve system and they set up reserves for their own uh, black people. Big difference between South Africa and Canada? South Africa wanted the labor of those people. They actually integrated those black people poorly, treating them badly, but they, the whole economy in South Africa is, was always run by the labor of black and brown people, the mines, the factories, everything. You, you know, a, a white person only did a white collar job. You never saw a white person uh, with a shovel in, the, in their hand or a broom. In Canada, it's the opposite. We simply wanted to get rid of the indigenous people. We wanted, first, the first white people who came here wanted to trade furs with them, but we needed their labor. We needed them to teach us how to live on the land. Quickly, when we discovered what we wanted was to agriculture, what we wanted was forestry, what we wanted was mines, these people were in the way. We wanted to get rid of them, and to the extent to which we couldn't completely eliminate them, we wanted them just to disappear culturally, to cease being indigenous people, to, to forget about their indigenous roots, and certainly forget about any claim they had on the land and resources and territory. We have to tell that story. Uh, Melissa, uh, Indigenous Relations Minister Carolyn Bennett, uh, obviously making headlines with her snipe at uh, MP Jody Wilson-Raybould. First off, is this the actions of a minister? And secondly, should she resign or be turfed from cabinet? I think she should resign, um, not just due to that comment, but due to her, her overall actions towards Indigenous people. Um, if you see how she treated the community of, you know, the West Bedouins in BC, you know, she chose to negotiate with four unelected chiefs. You know, she bypassed an entire community. She bypassed female hereditary chiefs because she had one goal in mind, and that was to, you know, get these select four individuals to agree with her. 
you know, and that was the wrong way and the wrong precedence that she started right off the bat. Because other communities like mine are like, okay, what if this happens to us? You know, who is she going to pick and choose to negotiate with? Is she going to bypass our entire community as well? You know, these are questions that are being asked countrywide, you know, and, and she's a physician. You know, she should yeah. be looking at this water issue a little more closely. You know, you see pictures of, you know, children with blisters and, and skin rashes, you know, and she's not saying a thing about this. You know, her tenure as an Indigenous minister is, is she's doing the exact opposite of what she should be doing for the people. And I think she should resign. I don't think she's the right person for that position at all. Uh, folks, I, I want to thank you for, for joining us. Uh, once again, a very engaging discussion on a very important subject. I'm hoping a lot more Canadians are going to be paying attention, uh, attention to this. I want to thank our guest today, Melissa Mbarkey. She's the Policy Analyst and Outreach Coordinator of Indigenous Policy Program at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. And Carl Narenberg is the political reporter for Rabble. And I want to thank you for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand. <laughs>